You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. David Edelman is a web designer who has created websites for the U.S. Army and the FBI. His first novel is InfoQuake. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you. Good to be here. David, I'd like you to set up the world of InfoQuake for us because you actually do that at the end of the book. You have created a complete history for us. So tell us a little bit about the background. Did you create all this background and then start writing the novel, or did you have to go back and create a, a superstructure upon which the action was based? I believe I really started off thinking that I wanted it to be the book to be set you know, some X hundred years in the future, about a millennium in the future. So I pretty much had that in mind from the beginning. Then the whole question was to basically work backward from there to today. Of course, I used some nice little tricks to do that. Like, for instance, there's a sort of an AI revolt that is mentioned in there, the autonomous revolt, which essentially allows me to pretty much wipe out all of today's technology and start fresh, which is a nice little trick in order in building history there. And it also gets you around the problem of the singularity, too. Sure. There were a couple of things I didn't want to deal with. The singularity, not because I don't believe any of that, but simply because I didn't really have anything to say about it. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to avoid was this entire talk of sort of bioengineering, cloning, all of that. And I so I sort of put some mention in the book about how it's taboo to do cloning and they, they don't really have this biological cloning technology, simply because I didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> so I sort of created a future in which that stuff doesn't exist. But tell us what does exist in your future. Basically, the, the future in InfoQuake is run through biologic computing. That's bio slash logic. It's nanotechnology, programmable nanotechnology that's in your bloodstreams, in your bones, in your muscles. And you can essentially program it like you would program a computer. The world of InfoQuake is full of these programmers who have this cutthroat competition to create programs for your uh, ochres, as they're called, uh, which are the machines that run inside your body. There's not much travel that goes on in this world. It's all done virtually through something you call the multi-network. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the multi-network. The idea is that it's essentially eliminated the need for travel. You can basically project a virtual image anywhere you want in the world, anywhere that the multi-network reaches, which is essentially everywhere in the world. And it it's really all goes on inside your head. It's essentially this network beaming pictures, sights, sounds, smells, tastes into your head while you just stand on this red tile in your own home and you experience it just like you're actually there. And the people you interact with also experience you as if you're actually there. So this is a great future for couch potatoes. Yes, great future for couch potatoes. Uh, of course, you know, one of the things I didn't necessarily want to have a book where everyone's just sitting around all the time. You have to have movement. You can't just have people sitting there like couch potatoes. It, it makes for very boring reading. So one of the the little devices I added to, to get rid of that is in this future, it, it's sort of the business etiquette that important business happens in person. So that if you're going to an important business meeting, it's it's polite to actually show up in person. I would suppose if you're going on a first date, you probably go there in person. Maybe by the third or fourth date, you're you're comfortable enough to do multi. But important appointments happen in person. So there still is travel. 
I'd like to talk about this as a piece of economic science fiction. You have these great drama points in, in your book. There's one point early on where somebody says, and this is kind of, in the science fiction novel, we expect certain kind of Phillips and little points. And there's one point where somebody says, I want you to license my technology. Now, this isn't normally seen as a kind of an action point. So what sure. made you take this tack? Well, I really wanted to write a book that seemed realistic. Obviously, it's not realistic. I mean, we can't do many of the things in this book, not yet at least. But I kind of thought of this as, let's say you were writing a book about Bill Gates. If you were writing the, the book about Bill Gates, you would take the point of view where these international mafia thugs start chasing after him and he's running around with a gun in his hand, that kind of thing. And I thought, really, I would want to write a book more about the drama of, say, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, their everyday life. There's plenty of drama in getting up, going to the meetings, having these tense phone calls, marketing decisions, product launches, all of that kind of stuff. There's there's just plenty of meat in there for drama. You don't have to have people running around with guns and spaceship chases and explosions and all that kind of stuff. You have some really fascinating notions in here. For example, you, you have this idea that human beings are subroutines of humanity and something that's similar. Children as models from the same factory as opposed to the randomness of procreation. So tell us a little bit about how you drop some of these nuggets through the text and, and maybe do, how they spin out of this idea of being realistic. You know, there's, there's certain bits of philosophy that come with thinking about a future that far ahead. You talk about humans are only a subroutine of humanity. When you're thinking in large distances of time like this, I mean, obviously you start to think of humanity as sort of a its own entity as opposed to just, you know, single human beings. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of philosophizing that goes with that kind of thing. And I found myself thinking, coming up with all these great little nuggets and sort of inserting them into the proverbs of the characters in the background of this world. And, uh, you know, it's kind of fun. It, um, you know, I've had people tell me that it, it really seems like some of these could be great sayings of people of the past. You know, I take that as a, as a nice compliment that, that some of these actually seem like wise and prophetic sayings. Let's talk about the three characters of this science fiction novel, because again, you have some very different characters from what you normally experience in a science fiction novel. You've got Natch, who's the kind of predator king and economic science fiction hero. You have Jera, uh, your sympathetic marketing gal, and you have Horval, the kind of dweeby programmer. So tell us about each of these guys and sure. and how they fit into this. Your vision of the future, I think you say you want it to be realistic, and I think what makes it realistic and really work is that it's, it's based on the kind of things that we experience every day, and, and we don't experience car chases holdups. We experience trying to pay the bills. On good days we don't experience yeah. those things. Yeah. <laughs> we experience trying to pay the bills and, and, yes. and the, the economic realities of life. Sure. So let's see, the three, char three major characters, Natch. Natch, obviously, at the beginning of the book, uh, you're really supposed to hate him. I mean, my intention is you exit the seventh chapter, which is the end of the first section of the book, and you're really supposed to think, man, this guy is just an ass. I, I can't stand him. He's an egomaniac. He's, he's essentially just spread terrorism rumors to get his own way, to get himself pushed up a little, another rung on the ladder. 
And then as soon as you turn the page to chapter to section two, starting with chapter eight, you start to see Natch's point of view from from essentially birth onward. And you see that there's a lot more to him. I didn't want this to be your your typical, oh, he had a lousy childhood. And so that explains everything. But but there's a lot of depth to him, I think. And there's a lot there's a lot more going on than just what you see in that first section. He's like everybody's worst nightmare of a boss. Yes, and I've had several people come to me and say, I worked for a guy just like that, which is a little scary. And and I've had several people, co-workers of mine, who've come up to me and said, you based that on so-and-so, didn't you? To sell a couple books, I'll say, sure. Yes, that's based on so-and-so. But it really wasn't based on one particular person. I mean, he's sort of a composite of all of these... Um, all these different bosses I've had over the years. I mean, all of the companies I've worked with in the dot-com era, you know, in the past 10, 15 years, they seem to have the same cast of characters. It's it's kind of interesting. You know, you sort of have the the young, charismatic, handsome, you know, lady killer of a boss. You know, you sort of have this um, engineering type guy, you know, sort of straight shooter, tend to be a little bit overweight, a little gruff, good-humored guy, that's, that's horrible. You've got your marketing type. A lot of them tend to be female, tend to be very brash, outspoken. Uh, you know, I, I must have seen five, six companies that seem to have the same cast of characters. I'm not quite sure if that's just a coincidence in what I ended up with, but I, I've seen that a lot just in the real world, and, and that's essentially what I populated my book with. I'd like to talk about the IT economy that we're currently creating ourselves, and you take this kind of to its ultimate extension. So tell sure. us a little bit about how you extrapolated our current e- economic system based upon virtual tr- some virtual transactions into your world of the future. And maybe tell us a little bit about what you're trying to say about the present with your future. Sure. It's essentially the world in InfoQuake is our current world turned up to 11, as they would say, in Spinal Tap. And really, it's sort of the late 90s turned up to 11. You sort of have this hyper kinetic focus on getting the new thing, the the best thing, the, the quickest solution, a lot of money flowing places before people understand what's going on, investments in companies just because it's the cool new thing and you want to get there before somebody else does, uh, which is essentially what the, the main plot of the book is. You know, Natch jumping onto this technology before he really has any clue what it is or what it does. So it is, in a sense, a commentary on today. I mean, you know, I call them thief corps, but essentially, you know, anybody can see their dot-coms. One of the tools of science fiction is to create neologisms, and you really create some great ones, the thief corps, the meme corps, uh, the creeds. Sure. Tell us a little bit about what these are and, and maybe give us some of the, the who you're really talking about. Uh, with the thief corps and the meme corps? Yes. And, uh, thief corp, obviously, there's a, a feudal interpretation here. The idea with a thief corp is that in this future, you don't really have much of a middle class anymore. And that's something that I, I, I believe strongly I see today is seems to be kind of vanishing with this growing divide between the rich and the poor. You know, the, the minimum wage is stagnating in the meantime. The, you know, the rich are just getting richer and that kind of thing. Extrapolating that hundreds of years into the future into this semi-realistic setting, you know, you get essentially 
you get the feudal lords who are these lunar tycoons that you never see in the book. But essentially, they've kind of partitioned off a good chunk of the moon because they had the money to get there first. And you never really see them, but they're kind of the ones driving things behind the scenes. They have their capital men who are essentially, you know, they're, they're kind of money brokers, they're, they're investors. And then you have people like Natch and Jar and Horval who are, they're, they're essentially serfs. Natch is really trying to climb out of that. I mean, he's, he's sort of at the top rung of the surf level of things. I mean, he is, his employees are called apprentices. He's essentially sort of the, the master craftsman. He's really trying to climb out of this trap that he's in, that, that everyone of his generation is in, essentially, into something higher, into something bigger, and something better. Tell us a little bit about the Meme Corps. Uh, Meme Corp, you know, essentially n- non-profit uh, in, in, in you know, simple terms. The way that I can picture a Meme Corp is it's devoted to an idea. For instance, you might have the National Cancer Foundation might be a you know meme corp de- you know devoted to the curing of cancer. Of, of course, in this book, they've cured cancer long ago. But for instance, one of the one of the secondary characters, Sir Vigil, has a meme corp dedicated to brainstem programming. And the way it's presented in the book is that meme corps are not profitable. They will do the work that nobody really can afford to make a profit on. But everybody needs. Everybody in this book needs some form of brainstem programming, but, you know, you, you just can't get on the street and sell it for a buck. You know, nobody's going to, it's just not sexy enough to, to go out and sell like that. So you have these meme corps, you have people running around in the background, raising funds for these kinds of things, you know, going back and forth, making these little presentations. And Natch, during his apprenticeship with Sir Vigil, does accompany him on some of these fundraising pitches. And he gets to see that there's really a whole different world out there than what you see kind of on the cover of Forbes magazine or, you know, the equivalent in this world. There's a whole world of uh, nonprofits, a whole sort of silent economy going on behind the scenes. And that's the meme corpse, essentially. How did you come up with the idea of subscription government? The idea that the nation state is going to disappear, that's not a new one. That's that's nothing that that I made up. So the thought then becomes, if we're going to a future where distance doesn't matter, where technology essentially allows you to travel anywhere. You, you can't just have everybody in sort of constant anarchy. You have to have some sort of governing structure. You need to have security. You need to have somebody picking up the trash. You need to have all of those servants, services the government provides. So the thought is, well, okay, so, so what provides those services? And what I came up with is called an LPRAG. I'm trying to remember exactly what the acronym stands for, Local Political Representative Association of Civic Groups. LPRAG is how I pronounce it. And it's basically a subscription government. They advertise, this is what kind of government we are. This is our policies. We have a, this kind of security force. And if you, if you need to get hospitalized or whatever, we've got you know, these kind of services for you. And you can subscribe to multiple different, different governments at a time. I think it's somewhere, at some point in the book, I say that apparently they subscribe to, I think it's three governments is what most people do. They'll take a, a local government that sort of represents their geographic location, like you might be as part of the Washington, D.C. local government, and then they'll subscribe to a government that sort of deals with their work life, their chosen profession, and a third one, which I can't remember at the moment. <laughs> 
One of the things that's interesting is that you do have a large number of kind of footnotes. You have an entire series of appendices to this novel. Yes. And, and tell us why you decided to do that, put appendices in. Uh, essentially, I decided to do that because in the early drafts, uh, when you started reading the book and every two paragraphs, you would have to stop and, you know, I'd have to stop and explain three or four paragraphs worth of exposition about what was going on. And that just got very tedious very quickly. So... I wanted that stuff to be in there because I had spent all the time and all the energy doing the research and doing the thinking out of what this world would be like, you know, what what a hoverbird would be like, how the multi-technology would work. Um, but, you know, I didn't want it clogging up the story. I mean, it's it's a story. It's a human story about characters and ambition and greed and, and all of these things. You don't want to have to sit there and interrupt that for this whole granular discussion about bots and transmission frequencies and all this crap. I mean, it just gets boring to read that in the middle of a story. Uh, so I took it all out, and essentially I, I tried to take most of that out and stick it in the appendices um, or online on my website. And, uh, you know, just leave in sort of the nuggets that you would need to understand the story. And the thought is, hey, if you're in the middle of this story and you're thinking, I don't know how this multi-technology works, you know, this this seems implausible, well, go flip to the back of the book, read the appendices, you know, maybe you'll still think it's implausible, but at least you'll see that I've thought it out. One thing that is quite interesting is your look at journalism in the future. Yes, drudges. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us about drudges. Uh, drudges, obviously inspired by um, Katie Couric, no, by Matt Drudge, who, when I started writing the first drafts of this book, so the Clinton impeachment was in, in full swing, that, that sort of dates that tells you how long I've been working on this book. Essentially, that was that was kind of set in motion by this one guy who had this website and who just threw up this gossip that he had gotten, and it, it essentially changed the world. You know, for that little brief period of time, there was the impeachment, there was the whole furor of that that of that era, and this is essentially what the journalists in this book do. I mean, there's no Washington Post anymore, there's no New York Times, and in the world of Infoquake. Uh, or their equivalents, I mean, you know, nobody can really afford to, you know, have these big organizations just pumping out news when, when information is just so readily available. So you have these personalities uh, called drudges who essentially spend all of their time trying to be larger-than-life figures, you know, making flamboyant statements, posting gossip. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not true. Just basically being a lot like Matt Drudge in, in, in many ways. And I see in a lot of ways, you know, we're, we're coming to that already. Uh, you know, some of the predictions in this novel, you know, I talk about happening hundreds of years in the future, but, you know, we've already got the blogosphere going on. People are already saying in 20, 30, you know, 50 years, you know, traditional journalism is going to be dead. Uh, I'm not sure how much I believe that, but um, we can certainly see the beginnings of it now. Let's talk a little bit just about, get back to the story of this. This is the story of a product launch. Yes. <laughs> Not necessarily novel fodder. I mean, it has been, well, but... And that was the challenge. I mean, I, I wanted to write about product launches and marketing meetings. I mean, there's drama in that stuff. People get excited about that. People go to work and, you know, and they're working on the brochure for their widget that's getting sent out to the widget manufacturers of the world and the widget buyers. And, and there's drama in, in that stuff in, in everyday life. I interviewed once a long time ago to be the editor of the National Chimney Sweep Association newsletter. 
I was astounded to discover, you know, there's a magazine about chimney sweeps. And, you know, you look in it and it's four color and it's pictures and, and technique and, and all of this stuff. And just sitting here in the studio, I'm looking at microphones. There must be 15 magazines, you know, devoted to specialty microphones, I'm sure. People just get fascinated about this stuff and they spend most of their lives looking at these things and uh, obsessing over these things. And, and that's where the bulk of our lives happen is, is at work. There's a very surreal aspect as well to this novel. It's very Philip K. Dickian. Uh, it has the the technology that you introduce is the is multi real, right? Yes. So multi-real. tell us a, tell us a little bit about multi real and why it has such an important economic impact. The concept of multi real is essentially that you are taking and kind of optimizing your brain processes. I don't want to spoil too much of the of the book because that's a bit of a, a surprise and the book comes into figuring out what this technology is. But it's basically a way of taking your brain processes and sort of segmenting them out and, um, you know, optimizing them in a sense and being able to look at different paths that you might take. You know, if you're, the example in the book is, uh, hitting a baseball. Someone pitches you a baseball. You have a program that can analyze the trajectory of that baseball, determine based on how you would swing the bat where that, that baseball is going to hit, and you can essentially choose which way you want to go. You can analyze you know, quicker than the speed of, well, instantaneously pretty much, where your hit is going to take you, and you can choose what you want to do. And that sort starts to bring up all, coins, all kinds of uh, issues of cause and effect. It starts to bring up issues that sort of tie in with, with Natch's issue of, of selfishness and his entire self-focus. And that really sort of becomes kind of the focus of the novel. And, and it's very much the focus of the second novel that, in this series that I'm writing it at this moment. One thing that, that I also found quite fascinating in, in this book was the notion of of black code this is yes. this is terror a form of economic terrorism isn't it yeah it's essentially hacking viruses you know it is really it's in a world where um, you have nanotechnology that pr- protects you from the everyday hurts of life I mean you can't run up to somebody and slice them open with a knife because you know in 15 minutes they're going to be healed. But what you can do is you can create this black code that can hit people, hit objects, you know, break into, obviously, the infrastructure of the world, the banks, and, the, and that kind of stuff. So black code really becomes the only method that people who want to get around the system can can use to get ahead. You create a unique form of computer programming. It's really interesting. It's more like sculpture. Yes. And what made you decide to turn computer programmers into sculptors? (laughs) Well, obviously, when you get to the level of computing technology that they're using in here, sitting there and writing if-then statements in in code really becomes kind of infeasible. And and that also is not a new idea. I think most people realize that there's going to have to be several different virtual levels of... Uh, or layers of programming 
we already talk about visual programming and that kind of thing. And this sort of just takes that to the nth degree. You have people who are essentially programming with these bars, biologic programming bars. And I believe there's 26 bars all marked with the letters of the Roman alphabet. And you pull up this virtual bubble of a diagram of your program and you basically just use these bars. And as you said, it's like sculpting or like knitting or weaving or something like that. You're essentially using these bars to create your programming code. We've seen in science fiction an evolution of the science fiction hero. And I think Natch really is an excellent example of the endpoint of that science fiction hero. Long ago, you have the space cadets, you have the the captains who are smart and adventurous and good with a gun or good, good sure. with exploration. Now the ultimate hero seems to be an effective manager. Yes, yes. You know, there's been a lot of sort of books that kind of focus on that that economic side of things. It's kind of the next evolution. I mean, you know, we've seen the cool guy with the gun. We've seen the Indiana Jones with the whip and the guy riding the spaceship and all that kind of stuff. And I think taking this back to the realistic episode, I mean, we see these people all day long. They have all kinds of drama in their lives. And uh, why not play on that? Why not capture that and deal with that? This was also based, I am going to have to guess, a bit on some of your experience working in a marketing department. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, yes, so a lot of it was based on some of my experiences. I guess you're going to ask me about some of the experiences that inspired this book. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious to, to know about some of the... Uh, we've. I think one of the things that I like about this book is it really captures this essence that I think every... This experience, and you've come back to this a few times, this everyday experience, or not everyday, thank God, <laughs> uh, of the catastrophically compressed schedule of yes. a product launch. And, and it, I, you, I take it you've been through a few of those. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've seen that kind of stuff, uh, you know, from up close, and I think this is nothing unique to me. I mean, many of us have. You see that essentially someone from on high comes down and says this this product will launch on X date, uh, ready or not, like it or not, and you basically just need to make that date, and sometimes that means late nights, and sometimes that means, you know, sitting and having pizza at 2 in the morning in the office, and sometimes that means... The product going out the door is not what it should be and doesn't exactly perform as advertised. Sometimes that sometimes it's a good thing that somebody, you know, stuck that deadline in front of you, and sometimes uh, it's not. <laughs> uh, as we can see, you know, Windows XP was given a very strict deadline. They said we need to get this out the door or else, and it got out the door, and now here we are several years later, and people have just gotten spammed and virused and hacked and botted, you know, left and right. So now here they are. Microsoft, again, is uh, rushing to get another product out on schedule, their new operating system, Vista. People are really worried that it's going to go out in the street and it's just not going to be ready for prime time. So we'll see. Tell us a little bit about what you have planned for the rest of this series. Okay. Well, book two is going to be called Multi-Real. I am, I would say, about 70% done with the, with the book at this point. I guess basically what I can say is a very basic synopsis of books two and three. In book two, things get worse. In books three, in book three, things get much worse. <laughs> book two is going to explore the technology of multi-real quite a bit more. 
You're going to get a lot more into the government side of things. Just like with the first book, the big climax of the book is a product launch. With the second book, the big climax is going to be a series of speeches. Um, <laughs> the third book is actually going to have some, you know, some kick butt action in it and some army stuff and a little bit of action in it here and there and a little bit more adventure and swashbuckling and that kind of thing. But uh, again, they're largely going to be more based on the sort of day-to-day economic uh, kind of side of life, just like InfoQuake is. Tell us a little bit about your history as a writer. (laughs) My history as a writer, I went to college at Johns Hopkins University where I majored in writing. The writing program there is called Writing Seminars. I studied some fiction. I studied some journalism. I, I spent my time in the trenches at the student newspaper there, which is really where I think I learned 60%, 70% of my college education came right there. Uh, I did some freelance journalism after I left college. Then the dot-com boom happened, and somebody came up and said, would you like to make lots of money and eat? And I said, sure, that sounds great. Uh, let me throw this journalism stuff to the side and, and start making some money. And I did make some money, and then 10 years down the line, I realized that this was just the most unfulfilling career that I, one could possibly have working for these dot-coms. So I decided to quit and to write a book full-time. And um, as I was telling you a little bit earlier, Rick, basically since college, since I graduated college in 1993, I have finished exactly two things in my life. One was a short story that I published in 1995 that has nothing to do with science fiction, uh, the second was this book, InfoQuake. <laughs> so essentially, I'm batting a thousand at this point. I've written, finished two pieces of fiction uh, in my entire life, essentially, and they've both gotten published. So I'm very lucky. What made you decide to take science fiction, take up writing science fiction, and then to use science fiction and, and extrapolate on the science of economics? Why did I take up science fiction? Well, you know... See either the money or the chicks. You know, I can't. I can't decide which. I'm I'm married, incidentally. So, if my wife hears that, then forget that. Um, but why did I choose the economic side of things? Well, again, I really didn't want to write your typical adventure, simply because I didn't think I would be very good at it. You know, I've tried to write sort of your pulpy, you know, kind of adventurous sort of story, and they've come out pretty badly. So I really decided. You know, I wanted to write something that was a little bit closer to my experience. I mean, they always tell you in writing classes, write what you know. Um, so that's that's what I started to do. I started to write what I know. It came out as Infoquake, essentially. Why science fiction? Why a science fiction yeah. novel set a thousand years in the future instead of a literary novel set in the present? I, you know, I could have written it that way. You know, I mean, I, I had some thoughts along the line that, you know, this really could have been set in... You say 1950, and instead of multi-real, they could have been talking about you know atomic energy, or we could have it could have been written in the 17th century, and then you would have had uh, you know Neil Stevenson's uh, Baroque cycle, you know that type of thing. Uh, I think the whole idea, you know, part of the whole idea of the book is this sort of talk about progress, this this talk about where are we heading, where is is this sort of greed cycle and capitalistic cycle leading us. And I kind of wanted to rev it up and fast forward it a little bit. And really the best way to do that, it seems, is science fiction. You extrapolate what's going to happen in 
500, 1,000, however many years. And, and science fiction is just really, it seemed to me, the best way to do that. If you start setting something like this in the past, then it just becomes, uh, for me at least, it becomes a little bit more about, you know, it still seems historical as opposed to something that we're dealing with today. We've been speaking with David Edelman. His new novel is InfoQuake. Thank you for speaking with me, David. Thank you very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.